I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am joined by my brand new, brand spanking new co-host, Sean Ross. Sean, good morning. How are you? Hello, hello, hello. Brand new. Brand new. Brand new on this podcast. Yes. For those of you who are not attuned, we are um, by podcast. Is that a term? <laughs> yeah, we're by. <bi. laughs> we're by. We are by podcast. We are the co-hosts of Drop Your Buffs, our survivor-turned-white-lotus-themed podcast, which airs weekly. Um, and now we're deciding to cross-pollinate, cross-co-host, by podcast bisexual, all the things. Um, are you feeling, you know, we're recording this with a few days left in the new year, before the new year, rather, uh, December 24th, 2022, to date us. Um, are you feeling in the holiday spirit? Honestly, no, because (laughs) (laughs) the holidays have really changed for me where I don't really go home for Christmas anymore. The family's kind of like all over the place and split up. So that experience of going home for the holidays doesn't exist for me anymore. And I'm okay with that. So on one hand, I try to do it myself. I put up a little tree and I try to watch my Christmas movies and I play my Leona Lewis Christmas album every year. And that's how I get into the holiday spirit. But honestly, I'm not really feeling it so much this year. I don't really have anything concrete planned to celebrate the holidays. So it's just nice to have a break. I agree. I, I'm, I'm with you where like my family does not get together um, we're Jewish, but even so, like when we were younger, we all around this time of year would all be home. And then like life happens. I think there was a pandemic, which changed the way that we think about holidays. And to your point, it's like, I think there's this association with holidays mean the chaos of having to get home. I mean, I think about the oh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas classic. Yes. Is it all be home for Christmas? I yeah. love that. Movie. A pretty good film. Um, it is really good, but I think about sort of just like all of the the circumstance around gathering home all just to like just sit at a table. And there's something nice about, you know, I woke up this morning and I was like, I have nowhere to be today or tomorrow. The city is like shut down. It's a it's a nice feeling. And I was I had a moment where I sort of like was filled with a little bit of sadness last night. And then I was like, you know, 
I can choose how to feel about this circumstance. I'm choosing to see it as a time of calm and peace. Now, you mentioned holiday movies. Um, I know for me, The Family Stone is my annual Christmas film. What, what are your... Do you have annual ones or just ones that you uh, tend to revisit? Not so much. I tend to revisit... Okay, this year I rewatched Love Actually, which is a bad movie. It's like a distinctly not good movie. But it is really fun because it's got that Mm. ensemble cast. It's got a great Joni Mitchell moment. So, like, it does appeal to me in a way. And it really, like, centers Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas Is You at a time when that song hadn't had its resurgence yet. So it's kind of nice to revisit it in that context because watching it now, it's like, oh, of course they're singing this song. But you have to remember, this was like 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago. I can't remember when that movie came out, but it's interesting. Yeah, I think it was like very soon post 9-11. Oh, yes, because they talk about 9-11, yeah. And you know, that's... Right, and a little bit like flippantly, if I, I, I... From what I know about the film that I haven't seen... They like were sort of a little too jokey about 9-11 at a point where like we weren't quite there yet culturally. Not that we Well, it's interesting because the big climax of the film is it, it all like it, it starts in an airport and it's like, isn't it great to see people coming together in an airport and it's in this post 9-11 world? And then the big climax of the film happens again at the airport, but the whole storyline around it is that someone is like sneaking their way through security and like evading the authorities and of course it's like a white kid so he gets away with it but i thought it was interesting and that's the one bill nighy is the star of that film or one of the stars right don't ask me i think he is and he's (laughs) now dating anna wintour so i do feel like i need to watch that movie as a fashion person Mm. just to be like this is the man this is the role that made the man famous that's now dating the woman who runs the american fashion industry Now, I became really enthralled with a news story this week that I just wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, Have you read this story? It was the cover of New York Magazine. The cover reads, she has her mother's eyes and agent. And it features nine celebrities, uh, their faces cut out and put on babies. And uh, among those celebrities are Dakota Johnson, uh, Maya Hawke, Maude Apatow, Zoe Kravitz. And the idea of this story is exploring the virality around what are now called Nepo babies, which are the offspring of celebrities, something that has existed since the beginning of Hollywood, but something that's taken on a new meaning because of TikTok. So did you read the story? Didn't read the story. Missed the story. I saw the tweets. I saw the parody posts putting sort of, because they have a chart, I understand, yeah. in the story, right? A chart, various charts. So I've seen like the memes, but I, I didn't read the story. You know, ever since the vulture went behind a paywall, nah. I, it's funny though, because I am, you're always the one teaching me about every facet of technology. And I sent you a story <laughs> recently that was from Vulture. And you were like, oh, I don't have a subscription. And I was like, Sean, open an incognito window. And I believe that worked for you. And so I feel like I was able to like unlock something for you in a world in which you've unlocked countless doors for me. Everybody's got a blind spot. Mm-hmm. I knew about incognito, but I thought it was just looking at, <laughs> I thought it was just looking at, for looking at porn. Yeah, no, you can do both. On you your can family look up, computer. Yeah, you can look up Sean Cody and Nepo Babies uh, in, you know, two separate tabs. Okay. But anyway, this article is really, really fascinating uh, as sort of what I feel hopefully will put a cap 
on the conversation around Nepo babies. And I say that because, you know, so many of our favorites from Jamie Lee Curtis to Laura Dern to George Clooney, these are all the, oh, to Drew Barrymore. I mean, mm. the list goes on and on and on, um, are, you know, would be considered Nepo babies. And I think that Lily Allen actually made a really interesting tweet this week that she caught a lot of flack for, but I thought there was actually a really good point in it, which is to say, like, if you think is if you think Hollywood is bad, just wait until you look at other industries outside of this and talk about nepotism, which is so true. I think that it's an unfortunate reality in the world of business. And I think because there's so much fascination with Hollywood and celebrity, it's easy to cast a spotlight on this because, you know, we can literally make things like charts. Whereas if this was, you know, Wall Street, we'd be like, who are these? these people at the same time though it's like i don't know what these people are supposed to say right it's like you're damned if you do damned if you don't i do feel like we're confusing the conversation of nepotism in terms of getting into an industry etc like we get that but i feel like there's not a distinction being made between those who are worthy and those who are not those who have the talent those who don't because i feel like nepotism is such a dirty word because we see so many people without the talent without the charisma getting into these positions getting these roles that they don't necessarily deserve and then we have others who are like stars in their own right i mean like a miley cyrus or these other people like all of the people you just listed laura dern and drew barrymore these sort of like uh like the last generation of nepo babies i feel like is different than the current generation of nepo babies Two things can be true, right? So it's like, yes, these people can have benefited from their genetics and from the opportunities granted to them because of it. And a lot of them, in turn, have to work hard and really do have talent. I think the thing is, when Gwyneth Paltrow, who was on Haley Baldwin's YouTube show in which she films in a bathroom that was once her real bathroom and is now a set... When she was on that show and they were discussing this very subject, hearing someone like Gwyneth Paltrow say what I just said, which is the idea that, like, we have to work hard, too, that's just something that, like, you're not, again, damned if you do, damned if you don't, you're not going to sound good as a person that comes from privilege defending the fact that, yes, you're privileged and you have to work hard. It's just not a talking point that's going to be easily digested by a lot of us out there that have to work hard without the advantage. And so I think that there's a lot of nuance in this conversation that is lost, but I do think that this was a fabulous piece. And the reason I wanted to bring it up right now briefly is this this author, Nate Jones, who wrote this piece, a little inside baseball for people that don't know, it's really hard in 2022 to write anything critical of celebrity. Um, Sean, you know well that it's been dealt with on this here podcast where sometimes someone will say something that could potentially be taken out of context and make them sound less than great. And the publicist will intercede and tell you that they want something taken out. Um, if things get heated, and and I'm not saying this has happened to me, but the publicists can threaten you. They can threaten you in a way which is to say you will no longer have access to this talent, or in more extreme instances, you will no longer have access to my roster of talent. And in this New York Magazine piece, they are naming names. They are putting you know faces on covers. They are calling people out. And some of these people are very well connected. I mean, hello, because of their parents in a lot of instances. 
And I really think it was admirable that New York Magazine was like willing to have this conversation that I think you would see a story like this on Gawker 10 years ago. Like this is very much a Gawker kind of story, but both in the research that was done for this piece, it's a really terrifically researched piece, but also in the idea that they're taking something that has become sort of a TikTok conversation, but has real roots in like why the conversation first began and, and why people are so enamored by it. I really respect New York Magazine for running this piece. And I do think there's a world in which someone like Lily Rose Depp, who is one of the Nepo babies named, who is about to have her show The Idol premiere on HBO. I think there's a reality in which when her people are going around saying, where should she do press? They were like, let's avoid New York Magazine and all Vox properties because they shit on us. Like that's something that New York Magazine knew was going to perhaps be the case and they still decided to run the piece. And I want people to know that like, a lot of other publications will not run stories like this or even even stories that are like one-tenth as shots fired as this piece because of that fear. I mean, we've dealt with it on the podcast, as I said, where it's like there are moments that are like the juiciest piece of the peach, if you will, and they get removed because of fear. There are there are moments that are not juicy that are completely banal that are asked to get removed. The tone of this piece is really biting and you just don't really get that grit in a lot of today's journalism. I mean, I think it really it reminded me of like 90s and early 2000s Vanity Fair, which was like a willingness to expose aspects of its subject that the subject was not trying to expose. And I think a lot of today's journalism and I'm guilty of this too. I'm not finger pointing here, but it's sort of like the celebrity or subject tells you they are this way and then you put that down on paper, you know? So-and-so says that they feel this way about this and so that goes in the piece versus being like, so-and-so says they feel this way, but when I look at their recent filmography or who they work with, you know, so-and-so says that they feel this way about the Me Too movement, but just wrapped filming a project with Roman Polanski. Like that to me is the level of journalism that I expect but we don't often get because again so-and-so's publicist could then say you're not getting access to so-and-so anymore so anyway highly recommend you view this story subscribe to new york magazine go incognito (laughs) (laughs) it's so interesting because i imagine the risk analysis for them has to be like we have this nepo babies piece which is the talk of the town right Everybody's clicking on this article. It is driving traffic to the website. How much traffic is an interview with Lily Rose Depp going to drive to Vulture? I would be so curious what conversations were had in advance around this very subject. Um, Because some of these people, namely Dakota Johnson and Zoe Kravitz, two of them both appear on the cover. Those are two not only heavy hitters in the industry at present, but very well connected people. You know, it's like I imagine someone like Zoe Kravitz probably not thrilled about this article coming out, especially because she was recently asked about nepotism in her cover profile for GQ's Man of the Year. Yes, Zoe Kravitz was named one of GQ's Men of the Year. Don't ask. Um, And I imagine this is a subject that she's not keen to keep discussing, especially because she's among the set that kind of bungled her answer originally when asked about it. I can imagine her calling up her boyfriend, Channing Tatum, and being like, hey, Channing, you're about to promote the third Magic Mike film, um, which, by the way, does not star anyone from the original except for Channing Tatum, conversation for another day. Um, I can imagine her calling her boyfriend and being like, Channing, don't do this interview with New York Magazine. They shit on me and my family. 
And like, they, these are real things that do happen. Um, but again, the risk assessment was such where they thought that the virality in the story getting traction was worth it. And I think it was as well. And I'm glad they did it. And I didn't see any charts featuring Meghan McCain. It's unfortunate. <laughs> Who for me is the poster child of Nepo babies. <laughs> Her father. And, and which also often came up on The View and she would get very, very defensive and talk about her accreditation and her, all of her credits on right. sort of Fox News and all these other places she was at MSNBC. And uh, it was never a great answer, but, you know, it's fun to watch those people squirm a little bit. Like, she's going to be fine. They're totally. all going to be fine. Totally. It's also interesting bringing politics into it, too, where it's like so often in politics, the idea of like son of or brother of or daughter of, et cetera, is seen as like a positive because it's like, oh, you're part of a great political family. You know, thinking about the Kennedys, for instance, and, you know, or even isn't like, um, wasn't the second, you're Canadian, but the second president, I think, was John Adams. And I believe if if my history is, is you know, coming back to me, the sixth president was John Quincy Adams, who I think was the son of John Adams. And it's like, that's nepotism at the very beginning of America. Not to say that should be like the blueprint by which we live, but... I'm Babe, just saying. I'm living in Justin Trudeau's world. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> okay, so before we get to today's interview, uh, I tasked both Sean and myself, you know, we're closing out the year with choosing a clip, the only container that I gave it, and neither of us know what each other's clips are going to be. The container here, Sean. Let me know if I have this, if I, if I dictated it to you differently. <laughs> but I think that I said just to choose a clip from 2022 that was emblematic of the year. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Do you want to go first? No, I want you to go first. Okay, you want me to go first. This is David Sedaris on coming out. I never liked the term coming out. Still, I did it. That was back in the 1970s. Now I'm having to do it all over again. I'm 65 years old, I've been with the same guy for 31 years, and on this day, I am announcing to the world that I am straight. I haven't met anyone else, haven't fallen in love with a woman. I'm simply done fighting the term queer. What bothers me is not that it used to be a slur, I just don't see why I have to be rebranded for the fourth time in my life. I started as a homosexual, became gay, then LGBT, and now queer. And for what? Why the makeovers? And what will it be next? I read an interview with a woman who identifies as queer because she's tall. That's it. She's never had a relationship with another woman, doesn't care to, for all I know. So what does it mean that we're both suddenly queer? I'm not tall, just the opposite. There are parking meters that stand higher than I do. I'm told that queer is about inclusion. It's an umbrella that lesbians and non-binary people and bisexuals and tall women can all stand under. But why not just say, I'm intersex, I'm trans, I'm a lesbian, etc.? Why do we need an ever-changing umbrella? Is it just to make the parades easier? It no longer matters what you are in practice, just how you identify. I'm going with heterosexual because, like the words Jewish or female, it rarely, if ever, changes. I need a resting place, and this is as good a one as any. So from here on out, I'm as straight as I come, but with a boyfriend. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's very uh, Whoopi Goldberg post Megan McCain. Uh, okay. Um, I'm wondering, what's your reaction to that clip? 
So hadn't heard this, missed this viral tweet with 1,000 likes. No, 1,000 retweets. Oh, 1,000 retweets. Yeah, like 4,000 likes. Okay, okay. That's nice. That's comfortable. Yeah. I don't have a lot to say about this. I don't know what the angle is, I guess. And I recognize also that it's David Sedaris, so I don't know how seriously to take it. Mm -hmm. Because I think that... David Sedaris tends to, you know, he like pokes the bear a little bit. And I feel like that's what he's doing here. Like, obviously, this is tongue in cheek that he's coming out as straight. I think this idea of the queer umbrella and people identifying as queer who aren't necessarily attracted to the same sex or multiple sexes or multiple genders, uh, that I feel like that's a non-issue. Uh, and if it exists, it is so limited that it doesn't affect anybody in the queer community in any significant way. And so I don't know that there's a problem that needs to be addressed here. But I mean, I also think that maybe just to some extent, he's wanting us to have this conversation, not us, but us as a society. Yes. It's funny you said it exactly as I was thinking it in my head originally, which is that I watched this clip originally and became like, you know, it was that instinct in me to like quote tweet this and be like, you know, this old man, right? But then upon rewatching it, I was like, I had to remember that who it is saying this and everything that David Sedaris stands for. Um, And so it reframed my watch of it when I understood, as you just said, that David Sedaris is someone who willfully pokes the bear. And maybe by saying these things that are seemingly controversial, um, he's in fact making a larger statement that's not in fact about queerness at all, but in fact rather labels or the meaninglessness of labels ultimately, or or the idea of like... um, how important that they really are. Uh, there is a, a watch of this one. I, it's like, I can see it both ways because I can see someone watching this and be like, this is so ridiculous that he doesn't understand the importance of these labels and the idea that like, yes, no one within the queer community at, or excuse me, I should say few within the queer community at large would welcome a person who identifies as tall but is not gender or a gender expansive or has a sexuality outside of heterosexuality, rather doesn't identify as heterosexual or wait, what am I trying to say? (laughs) We would not welcome a cisgender heterosexual person into the queer community who identifies as queer solely on the basis of their tallness. Did I get that right? Yes, that's perfect. Okay. You said it much better than I did. But didn't say it so well the first time. Um, but this is to say, like, none of us, not, I don't like to say none, most of us would would be in agreement on that. That is not queerness. So I understand what he's saying in the idea that, like, there seems to be this thing where it's, like, queerness no longer encompasses LGBTQ+, but instead anyone that feels out of the ordinary. But there's a way to read his statement, and again, I think you have to be careful here because of who's the person making the statement, which I think is really important, but there's a way to read it because if it wasn't David Sedaris saying this, but rather a lot of other people, the read of it, which I think we've heard before, is that transness, non-binary identifying individuals, anyone outside of like the gay and lesbian parts of the queer community, everyone else is sort of pushing up against that and trying to make the community 
so many other things that it was not meant to be uh, at its conception. I think that is a read that one can have, again, not necessarily from David Sedaris, but from people who make these statements about, you know, queerness just becoming too expansive, too all-inclusive. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is this emblematic of 2022 for you? It's emblematic in the sense that there's a clip that goes online that is so easy to get mad about without sort of recognizing the who's saying it Mm. and the whether or not there's weight in it. And because you don't have David Sedaris coming out, like you even said, it's like, this is very David Sedaris. A lot of people are going to watch this, have no idea who David Sedaris is to begin with because this is Twitter, right? And also a lot of people don't know him by face and by voice. Um, or even won't give him the grace of understanding his sense of humor and how he says things. It's like a lot of Bill Maher clips that I see go viral on Twitter these days. I'm like, not that I love Bill Maher, but like there seems to be a lack of understanding about who Bill Maher is um, and the very thing that he does. And that same idea, that poking the bear of it all. So I do think it's emblematic of 2022 in somebody saying something and me, Evan, getting initially offended by it because I think that's the thing I'm supposed to do when I hear something that's contrary to the more popular belief. And when I say popular belief, I mean popular in my sphere of living. And then me sort of like doubling back and being like, wait a minute, who's saying it? What's the nuance there? And then also like completely changing how I feel about it after the fact and being like, oh, he's David Sedaris is being David Sedaris mm. and making us think about questions that are larger. But mm-hmm. also recognizing the fact that like if a similar person said this exact monologue, it's like imagine if like Milo Yiannopoulos delivered this <laughs> same monologue, yeah. it would be wildly offensive. It's a different story. So... Yes, I do think it's very 2022. Yeah. Okay, fair, fair. All right, you're up. I went a lot more literal, (laughs) and I chose a cultural moment just because I liked it. So, (laughs) I'm almost embarrassed. So it's Running Up That Hill as played on Stranger Things season four. This is the thing. I don't even watch Stranger Things, okay? I think I watched the first season and I kind of just fell off. And the reason that I chose this is because I love Kate Bush. All-time favorite. And I really like this moment because this is such a historic moment in music that this song became the song of the summer so long after it was originally released because it was in a Netflix show, which I thought was impossible because there are songs in media all the time and they might have a little boost on the iTunes chart, but nothing to the extent that we saw with Running Up That Hill, which was topping charts all over the world. I think it went to number three in the U.S., which is Kate Bush's highest chart placement in history. Uh, It went to number one in the U.K., her first number one since 1978. It's the longest span between number ones. She's the first female in the U.K. to have a top 20 hit in six consecutive decades. She's the oldest female in the U.K. to have a number one at this point with this song. And there was a lot of conversation that happened around the 
resurgence of this song with regards to streaming and streaming numbers and how they are counted because there are rules in place that because the streaming world has complicated the charts so much where a certain number of streams equals a sale, a sale equals a certain number of streams. And so the charts have kind of started to lose their meaning to the point where early on in Running Up That Hill's chart climb, she was outstreaming the number one song, which was Harry Styles' As It Was. As It Was? And uh, so more people were listening to Running Up That Hill, but it was number two because it was an older song. And after a certain number of years, you have to basically have double the streams to count for one stream, if that makes sense. And so in extraordinary circumstances, they can reverse that rule if the song is indeed actually popular and indicative of sort of a thing that's going on. And so they did reverse that rule. And she was on the top of the charts in the UK for multiple weeks. And it was this huge success. And the reason that I personally love it is because it, it there seems to be something going on like in the past few years where no matter what your niche love and interest and passion is, it seems like it's going to have its moment in the mainstream at some point. And for me, this was very much that where I have cherished Kate Bush for years. I The last time she appeared in public was in 2014 when she did a series of shows and she's a very enigmatic and sort of um, reclusive figure who just doesn't appear. And you love this thing so much. You love this person and this person's work so much. And they are inaccessible. And suddenly they have this moment and you're like, oh my God, something's happening here. Everybody's realizing what I know. And it like gives me goosebumps a little bit. And you think that in any other world, for any other artist, they would take advantage of this moment. They would start going and doing TV shows. They might release like remixes. They might release new material. Her last new material was 2011. And nothing, nothing. She put out a couple statements being like, this is so cool. And that's it. And I just like, I really appreciate because one, that's a really sort of unique and old school approach to experiencing success. And then also just that, we can have this moment and this this thing that I love can be on the top of the charts, can be the song of the summer. And I think that that's really, because hope to a lot of like we, your weird interests. And I'm curious for you, Evan, what do you hope if you had like one niche interest that you think deserves its moment in the mainstream, what is it? Uh, that would be Lisa Kudrow's The Comeback, mm. um, which I think sort of had a mini version of that. Mm-hmm. The show first premiered in 2008? Wait. No, sorry, 2005, I remember. The show first premiered in 2005 and then came back nine years later. Oh, God, look at me with my fact-checking. Um Okay, then came back, yeah, 2005, came back nine years later in 2014 for a second season. Both seasons critically acclaimed, but similar to like Laura Dern on Enlightened, sort of like retroactively remembered as being like the most iconic thing, but no one really tuned in. Um, So I am hopeful that the comeback will come back for a third season, at which point 
it won't just be like the critics and the people with like that the the tastemakers that love it and in fact will become like a big cultural something that is my hope but i wanted to go back because you make an interesting like i think your lens on all of this is so interesting because I get a little protective sometimes of my things mm-hmm. going big. And so I wonder, was there any part of you as someone who has loved Kate Bush and realizes that um, running up that hill is like, but like, a, like a, a, not that it's not a great song in the canon of Kate it's Bush. It's not even in the top five of her greatest songs. Exactly. So I'm wondering if there's any part of you that's like, that feels that it's sort of a watered down I can I I hear your lens and I completely get it. It's like it's so incredible. She's being celebrated and she clearly like feels the love, which I think is also really important. Is there any part of you that on the contrary is like I wish it didn't have to be something as mainstream as Stranger Things to do it and do you ever feel like the kind of fans that are now like the people out there that are now going to walk around being like I love Kate Bush? Is there any part of you that's like bitch, you don't know Kate Bush? <laughs> Yes and no. The thing is, it really drove me crazy at one point that this was the the sound on TikTok that you would use to get your videos viewed. And so it was like running up that hill playing in the back of like a shopping hall or something like that. That I didn't love. It did start to get oversaturated in that sense. I just don't think that to find this level of success, I don't know if there's a vehicle smaller than a Stranger Things, for example, that that could actually propel it because, like I said, that even seems like an anomaly. And I mean, from my understanding, having not watched the show, that it's actually like a part of the plot of Stranger Things. And so I think that because it appears in multiple episodes and is integral to the plot, like that's why it had the staying power because you really do have to hear something more than once. There's plenty of songs that are like, oh my God, this incredible song in this moment in this TV show. Um, And those don't take off in the way that this did. So I think it needed like repeat exposure on the biggest platform, but then it happened. And so I actually was surprisingly okay with people embracing this song. I think because it's so old now, uh, I think if it was something a little more recent, it's like, I think about Jagged Little Pill, right? I was like, just going to bring her up. Yeah, yeah. So that I would get more protective of mm-hmm. because I think that Kate Bush has a more varied career and has more points that you can go into that there there, there are multiple eras and there are key songs from all of those eras. Whereas somebody like an Alanis Morissette, who I have cherished my entire life, has this one seminal album. She's had huge success with other albums and that's undeniable but she has one seminal album that people remember her for and so it's like when the jagged little pill musical comes up or these hbo documentaries or whatever it might be that is putting alanis morissette in the spotlight at that moment that everybody goes and proves how great of a fan of jagged little pill they are i don't like that that really turns me off because, and I like, why am I gatekeeping Alanis Morissette? I don't know, but I think it's like an instinctive thing that you do that you're like, no, 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 this is mine, and you're not getting it because you're not looking beyond the one album. Do you feel like there's any connection there to like our queerness? Because I feel a similar way about the things that were formative to me in defining who I was and helping me find escapism in my youth. I do get that gatekeepy, gatekeeperiness, whatever the whatever, however you want to articulate it. I get that. 
because it's it's sacred in a different way. That's true. And I think that is a difference, is that I grew up with Alanis Morissette and Jagged Little Pill. I didn't grow up with Kate Bush. You know, right. I'm, I'm too young to have been around when Hounds of Love, the album, was actually released. And so that may affect my relationship to that, where I could totally understand an older person who grew up with Kate Bush having the reaction that I would have with Alanis Morissette. Yeah. There's also just that level of like, and this reminds me of the Alanis thing, where it's like, when someone mentions to you and says, oh, I love Alanis Morissette, and mentions a deep cut of hers, or even like, you know, dives into like her newest album and mentions a song from that, it's so much more exciting than someone being like, oh, I love Ironic or something. And I feel that way, you know, going back to the comeback, where it's like, there's a couple of like really famous lines from the comeback, most notably, um, after a long day at work, I don't want to see that. And it's like, when I tell someone I love the comeback and then they deliver that quote or like, well, I got it. There's something to me that like in my mind, and I know this might be judgmental, but like I file them as like a certain kind of comeback fan (laughs) versus someone that comes at me with like one of like the, what I would consider deeper cuts. Now, mind you, you could say the comeback as a whole, it's in its, in and of itself is a deep cut and you wouldn't be wrong, but there's something about like going the extra mile where like Kate Bush is that same category where it's like running up that hill is the most popular of a more, I I don't want to say Kate Bush has always been popular, but a more obscure indie artist for lack of a better word, really. Um, so it's like, I, what I hope from people as they, you know, find Kate Bush is that that this allows them to then dig into her catalog and even from there find other Kate Bushes because there's an ilk, I'm not saying anyone compares to Kate Bush, but there are other artists in that same space that have this these massive fandoms and these fantastic catalogs. You know, I think about Christine McVie, who, who just passed on recently, and it's like when a lot of people think of Stevie Nicks, excuse me, when a lot of people think of Fleetwood Mac... <laughs> There you go. They go right to Stevie Nicks and and not to Christine McVie, who had a solo career and just a career completely outside of Fleetwood Mac and Mm -hmm. music that, you know, was so incredible in decades after the biggest hits from Fleetwood Mac. And I think it's a great opportunity when something like Running Up That Hill goes viral to explore the artists more holistically or explore other artists like them. So, yeah, it sounds like where we're landing is like this is a net positive. Yeah, yeah. And and if you don't know, Running Up That Hill is part of a concept album and one of the greatest albums of all time. And so it's like, yes, I, I'm fine with it being isolated, but recognize it's part of a greater work that, yeah. that, that even on that album, it's not in the top three best songs on that album. You know, in some ways, this sort of relates to the Nepo Baby conversation because it's sort of that idea of like something seems really surface. You know what I mean? Like you can call it like yeah. Nepo Babies are bad and it's like, well, but then like, what about Laura Dern? What about the, what, some of the ones we mentioned where it's like, there's a, there's an easy thing to say, which is like, yes, it's, it's, it can seem one way, but like there's, you can dig deeper with conversations like these. I feel like the two topics relate to one another. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been fun. Um, happy 2022 closeout to everyone. Um, I hope that your days are merry and bright. Um, when we come back from break, we will be joined by the incomparable Jessie Ware. I want to take a moment to tell you about my favorite skincare brand, one that's gone from if you know you know to the one everyone's talking about, Sunday Riley. From cleansers to brightening creams to clarifying face oil to acne treatment masks, if you've got a skincare problem, Sunday Riley's a one-stop solution. 
just looking to maintain your near-perfect skin, they can help with that too. Right now, this holiday season, Sunday Riley has launched their 12 Days of Gifting, which includes 30% off bestseller holiday kits, including their all-in-one lactic acid treatment, named one of InStyle Magazine's Best Beauty Buys of 22, and my personal favorite, the CEO Afterglow Brightening Vitamin C Gel Cream, which was a Women's Wear Daily Editor's Choice of 2022. Not too shabby. Go to sundayriley.com to check out all of their product offerings. That's sundayriley.com. You won't regret it. If you know me, you know I love me some cannabis. And one brand that you cannot pry from my hands is Can. C-A-N-N. It's a THC and CBD-infused social tonic that gives you an uplifting social buzz without the next day hangover. A delicious microdose-infused beverage made from five simple, all-natural ingredients. Blood orange cardamom is my favorite flavor, but as Shut Up Evan listeners know very well at this point, the grapefruit rosemary also slaps. Check out their latest holiday campaign film on Paper Magazine's YouTube page, directed by Lake Bell and featuring Benito Skinner, Meg Stalter, and RuPaul's Drag Race winner and former Shut Up Evan guest, Raja. And be sure to pick up your can today. And great news, New York State, can is finally available for us too via subscription. But that's not all. Use code ERK50 That's ERK50 for 50% off your first purchase. Go to drinkcan.com, D-R-I-N-K-C-A-N-N.com to learn more. Shut up, Evan. I was going to ask you, though, have you tried Nilly in Brooklyn? No. Have you tried Misada? No. Okay, we'll talk about this because I know you just went to Laser Wolf. Yeah. Which is phenomenal. You loved it, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Misada, spiritual contemporaries. Okay. Really, really. I I thought about bringing you something from there today, but I was like, it's weird to bring someone that you don't know food. What are you talking about? I have a whole podcast built on that. No, I know, but like with like germs and things, I just don't know. I don't know. Oh, you Americans. (laughs) Jesus. I'm past that. I'm literally ready to snog anybody who wants to snog me. I'm like, it's been too long. Let's go. Okay, next time. Mm -hmm. Next time. Next time. Um, Okay, but we were talking off mic about your concert last night. I think it's so interesting being able to talk to a musician that just did a concert last night. You have another one tonight. I'm not afforded this opportunity often, but I, I was I, on. No, I did. I did try and push it to twelve o'clock, didn't I? Cause, so I could have a little extra <laughs> hour in bed. But for the voice. What time did you get home last night? Twelve thirty. So do you? You finish the concert. Do you go out for a drink to celebrate? <sighs> you know what? I feel like I haven't deserved the drink yet because we we're about to we're doing these two headline shows, which are quite strenuous, like I'm dancing, I'm like a fucking tired pug by the end of it, like. <laughs> um, and and then we're supporting Harry Styles, which is a smaller, sh- um, smaller show, yeah. it's, it's huge, but it's shorter length for me. So I'm like just working out my stamina. I'm really bad with jet lag. And so, um, I can't even remember what your question was. And, uh, yes, I, uh, basically I would go out for a drink, but I don't feel like I've deserved it yet. Mm. But we did pop into, uh, a club mm. after to say hi. There was this Jesse Ware, unofficial Jesse Ware after party at this place called Three Dollar Bill. Oh my God, I love that you're mentioning Three Dollar Bill. Yes, very familiar. And so I just thought this is so bizarre that someone's doing it. I've never had somebody do a Jesse Ware 
unofficial party. I feel like three dollar bill could be named in an official Jesse Ware venue just because of the populace that goes there and their okay, love for you. So they, yeah. Well, on that note, I want to read some of the tweets that I saw from the concert okay. last night. Okay. So these are just you know a smattering, if you will. Jesse Ware Brooklyn Steel Show has orgy energy. Oh. At thirty three years old, gay men and music. Excuse me. At the thirty three year old gay men and music business conference, aka Jesse Ware concert. <laughs> Absolutely ready to twirl my tits off at Jesse Ware tonight. Then, one I really love, extremely gay niche tweet, but I think we need to make Jesse Ware into the Sarah Borales of the West End. Which we'll get to because I have thoughts about you reviving your Adelaide and West Side story on the West End. A place in world. <laughs> Thank you. What do you think it is about gay people that makes them go absolutely feral for you and your music? I... I kind of get it more now that I've entered into a kind of new persona and I have a whip on stage, like, and they quite enjoy that. They're like mothers being naughty. Um, so I, I, I kind of get it now, and I'm actually, I, I, I'm embracing it, and I love it um, and thrive off it. But they've been there from the start. And I did my friend Chris Sweeney's um, podcast called Homo Sapiens. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, have you been on it yet? I haven't. You should be on it, absolutely. Um, and he he talked about the idea, the notion that it's the the notion of diva and the idea that, and this is me making a total, um, you know, uh, uh, you may say, shut up, Jesse, what do you know? You're a straight woman, like, what are you talking about? Um, but he said, as a gay man, he said, um, it's, you know, um, divas, they represent, like, uh, unapologetically kind of fabulous, loud, um, strong, um, emotional, and 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 that's why he thinks that people like me, but I don't know. I'm gonna co-sign. Okay, fine. I agree. Okay, I was yeah. like, oh God, am I, am I <laughs> digging a fucking hole? Um, but yeah, so I don't know, but um, I love it. It's, there's been, I mean, from that community, it, it, there's such loyalty and, and, and and warmth and I was saying off mic like when I played this show well not this show but I played at the same venue Brooklyn Steel four years ago you know I'd written this third record about struggling to be a mother and being a musician and intimacy with my husband and struggling with you know being able to wear all these hats and it was quite it wasn't a miserable record but I was miserable when I was on this tour losing loads of money missing my daughter fuck this and then I have this audience that's just willing me on when I'm doing my big ballads and it was a lot of ballads it was a lot of mid-tempo and I looked at them and I thought you fucking need some tempo and then we fast forward to four and a half years later and honestly non-stop dancing and it, it's just it's wonderful it feels like a celebration and it's joyful mm -hmm. and I love it what about the caftanography, if you will? Because I think part of your ever-evolving public image You're is... You're so fucking good at this, aren't you, Evan? What do you mean? You're unbelievable. I just... Coming from you. No, 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 but you're just your you're sheer class. Anyway, carry on. Well, thank you. I will gladly take that. I feel like you have really embraced the caftan, and I am a great lover the of caftan. the caftan. Yeah. I? Yes, you have. And But not only the caftan, the way you move within it, Especially at this latest show. I watched the videos from the show last night. I'll be there tonight. Okay, yeah, you will. And can we just actually talk about the fact that Evan, I said, are you coming to the show? And he went, um, it's sold out. And I was like, bitch, like, what are you doing? Just fucking ask for a bloody guest list. So yeah. Um, so um, 
I didn't realise I was wearing a caftan, but I'm kind of into that. I thought it was a gown. It might be. I feel like, does it have a... It's like, what? A, fu- a cape? A gown? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. But I kind of like the caftan thing because it makes me feel of Barbara Streisand. Mm-hmm. So I'm into well, this. Right. And it's funny because your first album cover, Devotion, mm. reminds me of Barbara Streisand. Thank you. We love her. We love her. <laughs> have you tried to get her on the podcast? Impossible. I'm not sure she knows what a podcast is, much less would do one, but I'm open to it. Do you uh. have a connect? Uh, I'll be fucking fighting you for that, <laughs> yeah. Evan. Um, okay, Captainography, I just want to give it 10 out of 10. I really Thank like you. where this is going, and I, I am hopeful for more of it. Let's talk about a 2015 song of yours that was not featured on one of your albums. It's actually on the We Love Disney album. Oh it's one of my favorite Jesse Ware tracks, and favorite is, is a you know difficult thing to say when it comes to your catalog because there's so much, but you sang a cover of A Dream Is A Wish Your Heart Makes. A dream is a wish your heart makes When you're fast asleep In dreams you will lose your heartache You know who produced it? No. David Foster. That's why you like it. Wow. Wow. Sorry, carry on. I'm cutting in. No, I don't want to carry on. You go. So it was really weird. I'd lost my voice like three days before because that's, I'm literally, I, I am Miss Adelaide. I would hype, I kind of, I'm so, it was all psychosomatic and I would lose my voice whenever there was an important thing to happen. Um, and I'm doing this We Love Disney thing and David Foster was producing it. Now, I adore Whitney Houston and, and I'm, Obviously, I knew of David Foster, but I kind of probably knew of David Foster probably with the Whitney stuff the most at that point. Um, he did Celine as well. Didn't mm-hmm. He's done everybody. Um, but we did this weird thing where I was in a studio in London and he was speaking to me. He wasn't there. So we were kind of doing it almost like ahead of COVID times. It was like we were working remotely and he was in a studio in Los Angeles and he coached me through it. And there's a big note in it where I don't know if I did hit it or maybe it had a little fucking help. (laughs) But I was like, fuck's sake, I need to get this. And he was like, can I tell you something? Whitney didn't get that note and I have nothing. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? I don't mind that. And that is fine because she's an unbelievable singer. So fine, if you need to tweak me a little, that's fine. Well, it is a very successful tweak nonetheless. It is such a good cover. I mean, look, I, I got it. I got it, guys. It just made me need a little brightening. Yeah, maybe not happening in a live show anytime in the immediate future. Absolutely not. But beautiful cover. Thank you. Highly suggest people listen to it. (laughs) You are in New York City for the first time. I believe you haven't been here for quite a few years. As anyone that knows you knows, you are a massive foodie. Yeah. Off mic, we talked about the fact that you just went to Mike Solomonov's Laser Wolf the Mm -hmm. other night. You had the french fries, right? Yes, the harissa ketchup, yeah. very nice. What's funny is Mike doesn't like when people love the french fries because I think that they're sort of like the easiest offering on the well, menu. Well, I mean, you brought it up. I would have talked about the beef short ribs. Okay, I mean, I would get there. So? <laughs> I would get there. But what about that plate that just comes out with all yeah, of the different the salad dips? Tim. Yeah, very oh, good. Very, very good. Very, good. Nice people. Very nice people. Beautiful um, location. Oh, my God. We got this beautiful, beautiful... Um, uh, sunset and it was great. Mm. 
Where are you dining this trip? I mean, obviously besides Laser Wolf, are there places that you know are, are big on your list? I know for instance, Sarah Borales, when she was on your podcast years ago, she mentioned Ruby Rosa, one of my absolute favorite places. Have you tried it since? No. You still gotta go there. So, she was right. So that's interesting because I should have actually gone through the New York series, of uh, redone it. I've got like no time, Evan. Like I go to Chicago tomorrow. I don't have time to go anywhere, which is really annoying. Um, I had really good coffee at La Colombe because the coffee in the Roxy's piece of shit, um, and that's where I was staying. And um, but La, Col- La Colombe, it like it was a really good um, drip coffee, and the girl was very sweet. Um, anybody, by the way, if you ever come up to me anywhere and you go, "What's your pleasure changed in my life?" I probably will put you on the guest list, just so you know, oh. um, because she was like, "Are you Jesse?" And I was like, "Yeah." She went. What's your pleasure? You changed my life. And I was like, "What are you doing tomorrow? Do you want to come?" Um, so yeah, uh, I, I love people flattering me. So yeah. Um, well, we love to flatter, and I agree with you. The the coffee at that hotel is is not it's iconic. not fab. Now I got engaged recently, and yeah, I'm thank you. I'm bringing that up because you got married in 2014. Mazel tov to you. you. Um, on a Greek island, I believe. Yeah. Which seems complicated. I am uh, <laughs> undergoing the process that will be planning destination a destination wedding. wedding? I don't think that's in the cards for me. Okay. I just feel like, I mean, you can speak of this. I feel like it's complicated. It is, but it separates the wheat from the chaff. I get that, but my concern would be that I would have people that are really important to me that could not make the trip and that they would yeah. be, it, like, yeah. so it's like, I hear that argument, but I also feel like there could be people that would be X out of coming that I would want there. Look, I totally get that. And also, I think the place that we chose is somewhere that I've grown up in. And so, yeah, there was a connection there and people wanted to have a summer holiday. Yeah, It kind of worked, but I, I, who told me that it's the most selfish thing? Oh, Michael Buble on the um, podcast said, people that have destination weddings are fucking dicks. And I was like, yeah, you're right. We're (laughs) selfish dicks. Um, So yeah, I I also think a city wedding, like would you do it in New York? We're, I mean, in, in a theory, hotel. well, in theory, yes, but we're starting to price it out. And it's mm. like, my God, because here's the thing Calling right now. the favors, Evan. I think it's going to turn to that quickly. But the thing is, Anna. it's like, I, yeah, I'm <laughs> getting her on the phone. Um, it's one of those things where as I start to like, you know, look at my life down the line, I want to prioritize surrogacy, which is very expensive, as yeah. is a wedding. And so yeah. you kind of have those moments where you're like, do I allocate mm. a bunch of money for one day? Yeah or something that's long-term. At the same time, I care about that one day very much. Um, I bring this up to ask, what is one piece of advice- Do you need a singer? Were you just about to ask for a singer? Yeah. Okay, fine, go ahead. Are you free? Yeah, of course. (laughs) I loved What's Your Pleasure. Uh, uh, What's one piece- I'll do a whole set. (laughs) (laughs) What's one piece of advice you have about the wedding planning process? Something that like you didn't know was gonna be the case that you wish you knew then that you know now. Don't treat your mum like the uh, travel agent who has to, people were like asking her how to put a fucking parasol up by the end. She was just like, fucking work it out. <laughs> like, I think I put too much pressure on my darling mum who loves a party. She was saying it was our wedding rather than mine and my husband's Sam's. Um, it was, um, so yeah, let your mum be the guest as opposed to the wedding planner. Cause she like, <laughs> we both had like chest infections by the end. We were like, can everyone fuck off? Um, <laughs> So, and don't drink too much. I th- I think you'll be having the best time of your life. Do you drink? I do. So I do too. I'm not a massive drinker, but- You I, wanna like remember the night. Yeah, and I really remember it. And yeah. it, it, I mean, it was cause you're, 
drunk on love. Um, mm. But I really didn't drink too much, and I thought that was really fab. But that's not planning the wedding. No, but that's a good call because destination is a fucker though. Who's calling? My best friend. Do you want to? Do you want to answer, <laughs> Kevin? <laughs> But he never calls. Maybe it's important. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no, no, I bet, you, I bet you it's a good thing. Uh, okay, so from one big event, a wedding, let's go back in time to your bat mitzvah. Yeah. Um, what are your favorite? No, I haven't had one yet. You haven't had I'm one? I'm having one in December. Wait, why were you not originally bat mitzvah? Because I had better things to do at 15, 13. Wow. Yeah. Contro. Yeah, I was, I'm like, I'm a pretty Bad shitty Jew. Jew. Yeah, my brother like did his and also it was more important for my brother to do it like my mum was like my son who wants to be a rabbi he's not a rabbi he's a doctor like so um but um yeah I'm having one I'm learning Hebrew I had a Hebrew lesson before my blooming sound check yesterday wow um and it's really hard so what compelled you at this juncture of life to say yeah I think when the kind of I think when I became far more aware of, and this is going to sound really downer, and it's it's not, but kind of, kind of understanding anti-Semitism, which it, I felt like my way to react to that was to feel as proud a Jew as possible, and to really understand. It, it, it's less about the faith for me. Yeah, I feel incredibly Jewish, but I. Um, I don't understand what's going on. And I don't go to a temple that much at synagogue, but um, I wanted my kids to be brought up with rituals and traditions because I think they're beautiful. I also quite like the idea of all my kids thinking they can't go out on a Friday night mm. um, and having to have dinner with their mother when they're teenagers. Um, I know that will backfire. But I, I wanted to be able to offer it to them. My husband's not Jewish, but he kind of loves all the bits. We had a Jewish wedding and that was fab. We had the chuppah. Is your fiance Jewish yes um I loved all the Jewish bits that we did Me too. we got the, all that, our way friends to yeah. do it and it was like they loved it too um well I feel like it's one of those rare times that Judaism can seem cool I mean I hate to say it that way <laughs> that um cool, yeah. but yeah I mean obviously you know growing up and having Hanukkah when everyone else was celebrating Christmas there was just so many ways in which like being Jewish meant you couldn't be a part of something mm. and I feel like a wedding a Jewish wedding is one of those times where it's like check out all of these cool traditions that yeah. we have that you can be a part of that aren't around like, oh, here, you can't eat this meat or you have to eat this meat yes. on this plate. Like, you know. Yes. Um, but to your point, I've been thinking a lot about this lately where it's like Judaism, people, it seems, and I say this from my perspective, aren't as proud to be Jewish in the way that people are proud mm-hmm. to be gay, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, these are both two huge aspects of my personality. Mm-hmm. And yet I get nervous sometimes, especially in places like Twitter, to say- I left Twitter. I get it. Yeah. Because it's like, I think that there's just baggage that people associate with Jews in the sense that, if I may say, that we use our oppression a lot as a talking point when I think what we're learning is so many cultures have been oppressed through the years, that there's that paradigm shift for me of like, growing up thinking that Jews were the most persecuted individuals mm. and learning that a lot of communities have been persecuted. And so what do you do with that information? I haven't landed anywhere yet. Look, I, all I can do is try and understand it better. And yes. I find it fascinating. It, it's a bugger and I'm working it out and I'm getting better at it. And I still don't know what I'm bloody saying. I just know how to say the words now. But then understand, I've got an incredible um, teacher. She's a, a, a poet, um, academic um uh, amazing teacher who actually was babysat by my grandma in Manchester when she was younger and she taught my brother and it's 
really interesting speaking to her and unpicking the meaning and this idea that it is to be debated and discussed and not accepted mm -hmm. whatever's and i and i'm finding that as a somebody that studied english literature or just looking at a text and being like how do we unpick this how many how many different meanings can this offer how many different roots are there to these particular words you know i i think that as a 37 year old woman i i appreciate far more than if i had been 12 mm. doing it and so that i'm i'm enjoying that aspect so, so maybe doing a degree mm, so maybe the lesson here is it's like maybe the bar bat mitzvah uh, industrial complex needs to push back a few years <laughs> yeah. you know mature students only. yeah Okay, so one of the things that we do on this podcast is we have celebrity friends or fans. Oh my God, I want to know who you got for me. Well, let's find out. Here's Fingers our crossed. first guest with a question for you. Hello, Jessie Ware. Hello, Evan. It's me, Lily Allen from 2009. <laughs> I was asked to send you a question, so here it goes. <laughs> I, myself, as a singer, songwriter, traveling, touring artiste, struggle to maintain the work home life balance mm -hmm. jesse where you seem to make it look so easy so tell me is it true jesse where can you have it all because you make it look like you can well that's just instagram <laughs> lily as you know because you did a really important insta story the other day i don't know if you saw I it i did look i have so much respect for lily um, she's been incredibly vocal about her struggles and and from what I gather, it looks like she's doing it pretty well, juggling it all. She's just become an acclaimed actress. She's m moved across the pond. She's got a really hot husband. Yeah. Her kids look like they're they're really good readers. I mean, I feel like you're doing it much better than me, actually, Lily. Um, my kids don't have an attention span. They're loud. They can't eat out. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, no, I that, that's very sweet coming from her. She's always been incredibly generous and supportive. She's coming tonight, actually. Oh. Yeah. Well, I think she is. She's on the list. She said she loved watching her. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Um, I'm juggling it, I, but it's with the help of everybody. Like she knows, you know, uh, we have a nanny, incredibly supportive husband who I've talked about. Um, he supports me, you know, there's no resentment, even though he's FaceTimed me the last three days and I've had like eye patches on and I'm still in bed. We are five hours behind, so I'm just gonna put that out there. <laughs> it's not cause I'm just, you know, watching Netflix in bed. Um, but yeah, it's not easy. And I wrote about it in the last record. Nobody gave a shit about hearing it. They were like, God, give us tempo, come on. Um, it's really shit. And you try and vocalize it and then you sound like you're complaining because I'm very lucky. I think my daughter, who's six, is starting to understand the notion of me going away and what that means. Mm. And she said to me before I went, she went, why don't you just have a normal job, mummy, where you can be here? And I said, oh God, I'm so sorry, but my job is really fun and you can see how fun it is. And it's really amazing. I'm very lucky that I love the job that I do. And that's something that we're discussing at the moment. But of course I was like, oh God, I feel so guilty. Mm. She also thinks it's completely acceptable to have like three, <clears throat> three different jobs now, because obviously like I do the podcast, right. I do that. And in my spare time, I'm a teapot as my grandma would say. So um, anyway, no, we're, we're struggling. Lily, it's a struggle as you know, but we try and work it out. I thought the way that Lily responded to somebody saying, you know, I don't really understand your like content now. 
um, what are you? It's a funny thing because nobody's saying that about a bloke, are they? No. But we've had this conversation before and it's boring. We have, but I think it's good to see people like Lily speaking to it. And she's and so articulate she with it. Is, and yeah. She's, yeah. I do want to put it out there. I feel like there are a lot of parallels between your careers and also the evolution of you as musicians. Mm. I I mean, I mean, there's so many artists I'd love to see you collaborate with, but like, I am a massive Lily Allen fan and I just think the two of you together on a track, I'm putting it out there. Speaking that of could be other good. collaborators, uh, a mid-tempo, I have a question about the crying game, if I might ask. Oh, yeah. um, I'm curious about the crediting on that song. So this is a 2014, I think it was on the Pink Print, uh, Nicki Minaj's second album. You were originally credited as co-writer, which you were, you were co-writer on the song, but then later you were added to a feature uh, singer on the track. So Nicki Minaj featuring Jessie Ware. Welcome to the crying game where you lose your soul. Where it ain't no easy cash, you gotta use the toll. Ain't no cruise control, you about to lose control. Other duets on the album were credited as such, but not yours until finally it was. And I'm curious if you can speak about what went on behind the scenes to, oh. I don't fucking know. <laughs> it was like one of those things that I think was a mistake. Got it. I was with different management. So I did get credited, um, but yeah, a little bit late. I wrote it. I wrote it here in New York for myself, and it wasn't gonna. It wasn't right for my next record. Um, and Nikki heard it through Pop Wanzel, who's the producer, and she loved it. And she kept it all, which was amazing. And then added her bit, which was really cool, and kept me on it. You know, it was great. It was just. A, it was like um, a stroke and a slap because it was like, oh my god, I'm on a Nikki re record, and then it was like, oh. Um, I'm not credited, but okay. But it was fine, it got sorted out. But yeah, I think it was a mistake. Mm. So jumping ahead, you released this single, Free Yourself, in July, you wanna say? Yeah, I think so. Okay, and first come the gays, then come the girls, then come the industry, as Samantha on Sex and the City once said. But like, this song made a huge impact upon release. So fucking good. I also want to shout out the video. I love the video. Thank you. I love all, I mean, I love all your visuals, but like, I love this song so much. We are led to believe it's the first single off of yep. a yet to come fifth album. Confirmed. You've now graduated the high school of albums, Where if am you I? will. Have I? Yeah, you're on your fifth album. This will be your fifth. Okay. So this is like a college level album, if you will. Right. So where are you at in the sense of like how you are you? Is it different for you to go in four under your belt? Yes. I think four, it's different to go in four under your belt, but also with your last record being the most successful. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I'm flying high. And, you know, I A&R'd the last record and I've A&R'd this one and people have given me the space to do that because they've seen that it works. I think there was a point where they were like, you know, yeah, sure, A&R, because I think people didn't really know what was gonna happen. I had the best people working with me, James Ford, um, and more recently, uh, Stuart Price. And everyone's given me the space. I was gonna bring a song out before I did this tour. I thought you meant in this room here right no. now. I was like, okay. Guys, um, <laughs> no, I was gonna bring it out. There was this thing of like, maybe we need to get one out before the Harry thing, because that's such a big moment for us. And then I was like, the people that are watching me in the Harry Styles show potentially don't even know who I am. So 
I don't need to give them more information for a new song. Look, I know the fans want it, but I just thought actually it's cleaner to start the new year with it. Record's coming out next year and we'll go with that. And actually I haven't played What's Your Pleasure. To, I haven't presented the show that I'm so proud of that I have not been able to tour enough of to North America yet. So I'm going to enjoy that and I'm going to do one last hurrah with that and then we go on to the next thing. I love that. Talk to me about working with Stuart Price. I recently listened to his song Exploder with oh, Madonna. With Madonna, yeah. yeah. Talking about Hung Up. What a treat to hear Madonna in podcast form. If you haven't checked it out, I can't recommend it enough. And one of my takeaways, obviously I'm a non-musician, was getting the sense that she was so used to having a process with so many cooks in the kitchen and Stuart comes along and it became just the two of them. And I, I sensed from her there was a freedom that came in not only finding a collaborator that you trust, but a collaborator with whom it's just the two of you in the room. So what has it been like for you working with this prolific producer? Well, firstly, I didn't think it was gonna work because I, I have, I've had experience with um, what you would call a super producer bef before and I've kind of probably not been in the right stage of my career, apologetic I've been, I've kind of felt dialed down. And so I was like, that's probably not gonna work, but fuck it, I've got the most of the record with James anyway, so we'll try it. And he wanted to work with me, which is a huge compliment. And I don't think I realized what a huge compl compliment it was, which probably was helpful for when I went into the room with him. So I kind of had low expectations, even though I have huge respect for him. And you know, these when you meet up with somebody and you're in the room with them and it's a musician or a songwriter or a producer, you never know how that, it, when it's a stranger, you never know how that day's gonna go. Sometimes it can be, so awkward and painful, you're just waiting for lunch. Sometimes it's magic, and it was magic with Stuart. Um, but of course it was magic with Stuart because that's why he's so good. So it was me and Coffee, who I write my stuff with. He He's done a lot of the Dua Lipa record. So I, I knew that I had Coffee, who I love and know, and then I had this stranger, Stuart. And I was like, okay, well, at least I know Coffee, because it's really, it's a weird thing going in and writing with somebody and trying to create something when you've never met each other. Um, but it was amazing. We wrote two songs. Free Yourself was the second song that we wrote of the day. And that is not usual, by the way. We wrote this amazing song called Lightning that's on the record that's like this R&B song and I love it. And it makes me kind of go back to like my yearning to be Sade days. Um, and, and then he played me this backing track that was immediately brilliant. And Initially, I was like, I think maybe it's like too housey for this new record. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck it. He wants us to try it. And then we wrote for yourself in like a second. And the rest is history. We've written loads more together. The next single's with him. Um, and I love him. He's a kind, kind man. He's understanding. He's a family person. Mm. He, um, His family is everything. But equally, when you have him in that room, he's completely devoted to what you're doing. And also, I think he's having fun with the music that we're making, because I think it's making him go back to that kind of Jacques Leconte days, the hung up, you know, Madonna world where he, he was a dance producer. Right. So we're having a lot of fun together. So when you finish the track, is that called the master or what's like the final? Um, so what, like when it's finished, finished? Yeah. That's the master. Okay. Mastered so version. your first time hearing the song, because there's something about for yourself, which is in the vein of what's your pleasure, but it's mm. just, it's very intoxicating mm. is the word that comes to mind. And the way the song, and this is sort of that stu uh, signature Stuart Price, but it sort of like builds in you the same way Hung Up did, where like after a while, you this is why I think people connect with you the way that they do, because you like infect 
people and, and in the best way. Thank you. <laughs> that word I feel like has a negative connotation. I mean it in the good no. way. Um, but it builds in you and then by the end, you, 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 you feel like you're freed, right? I mean, you know, to go into the lyrics. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, what was that experience like when you heard the final master for the first time? I think by the time, sorry to like ruin the romance, but by the time you hear the final master, you're sure. like sick of the fucking song. Um, but the first time that he, so the demo that we, we got back, so we wrote it that day. Me and Coffee went out for a drink, which we've never done before after a session. But I was like, I feel like we need to cheers this day because this feels like a a bit of a changing, like, you know, game changer moment for me. So we went out and had a tequila somewhere and we were like, cheers. And he was like, this is a fucking killer song. And I was like, I think it is too. And it's that thing the unknown where you're like, I think it's amazing. And it feels really exciting. And I think I went home and he sent it like, the next day, I think, or 24 hours later. And I played it to my husband and I played it on like the shitty TV speakers because it was like the only connection I could get. And I played it and I was like, what do you think? And he was like, this is fire. And my husband's my best A&R, my husband and my kid. If they like it, then I know I'm onto something. And he was like, this is really good. And he was already singing it by the second chorus. And that is an earworm. So yeah, it's, I, I thought it was, not even massive, and I don't want to even say a hit, because, you know, it's not gone to radio here. It's not like, you know, it's not been number one anywhere, but there's something about it that's immediate, and it feels like you've heard it before, which I think is um, sometimes what people long for in a song, that familiarity is weird, that kind of nostalgia to something they can't quit quite place. But, um, yeah, I love it. Mm, I love it too. Thank you. So let's bring in our second celebrity guest to the conversation. We're speaking about music producers, and I was like, you know what? I want to seek out a producer, but I was like, Benny well, Blanco, who have you got? I was like, I want to ask who I consider one of the best producers of all time, but can I get him to to call in? And who is it? Hey Jesse, it's Mark Ronson here. Oh my god! Um, I have a question for you. Um, Obviously, the success story of What's Your Pleasure is such a beautiful thing because, I mean, it's well publicized now, but coming off this record that, you know, you felt like was a disappointment and I, I could be projecting here because this is how I feel after records, but wondering what your place is in pop music. It feels like it's such a thing that kind of chews you up and spits you out. And there's, you know, it's, it's just a finicky, dastardly place. And that's what makes this story of what's your pleasure so wonderful and i and i wonder for you um was it the power of surrender in a way like well fuck it if no one's gonna if, if i'm no one's gonna listen to my music i mean that's an exaggeration but if no one's gonna listen to my music i might as well just make the shit that i love or was it this feeling of like i better make the best thing i've ever made is it a combination of both um I'm just curious because I've I've had records, you know, same thing, come off a disappointment and you're driven by this thing. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Sorry this was a bit long. Bye. <laughs> I do just want to say before I allow you to answer, one of the great joys of this podcast and getting to have people like this call in is yeah. I would never be able to ask you a question like that. Because I don't Why? work, because I'm not a musician. I don't know the inner workings of it. But like, I I'm so excited to that to have that question posed to you in this moment. And because I get what he's saying, but I would never know to ask it. It's also interesting to feel like you think that Mark Ronson has. Thank you, Mark, by the way, and I love him, and I've always wanted to work with him. I'm desperate to work with him. Well, so maybe like me, him, and Lily. Um, oh, wow. um, <laughs> I 
I really respect Mark. And you think about Mark's trajectory and you think it's just been up, right? And he's just had like amazing moments in his career, like personally for other people, all of it. And he's constantly kind of doing really creative things, whether it's, you know, with Gaga, Amy, you know, um, or his own stuff like, um, but anyway, I, um, yeah, it was a complete fuck it. It was, I got off the plane here. I had some dates booked in with James Ford, who, and I was determined to go, I wanted to go and create. And so I got back from here. I had like a week or two with James and two songwriters that are from the States called Shun Goodzo and um, Danny Parker, who I'd worked with on the last record and I just loved them. And they were flying over and they are such Anglophiles that they love it. So they were like up for it. And I was like, I need to return to some form of um, uh, happiness, um, escapism, um, return to, I started in dance music. So it was an absolute fuck it. It wasn't really feeling like I needed to prove anything because I felt like it was probably my last hurrah. So if I was going to go out with, a, you know, if I was going to go out and get dropped or whatever, I was going to fucking do it. Because I was just like, well, the podcast had started and I was, I was like, look, like, I'm, how old was I then? God, I don't know, like 35, 34. And I was like, you know, my time is nearly up in this industry as a woman in music. Um, so I thought, sod it, I'll just do it. Oh, sorry. I thought, sod it, I will just enjoy myself and I will dance the pain away. And it worked. I, I actually now understand that I'm, I'm good at it. I didn't think I was good at it. And pe it was the right people giving me the confidence to say, no, you actually, you know what you're doing. Mm. It's very uh, Dorothy and Oz, where it's like, it was there all along. Mm. You just needed the shift in perspective. Because, yeah. I mean, obviously the talent was there. And as you say, the first three albums are tremendous. So, yeah, no, I thank you for sharing that. I'm really, uh, I'm very grateful that you stayed in this industry. Thank and that you. you will continue Me to too. stay. because working out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think there's more music. Yeah. So let's talk about the podcast. I mean, here I am, season three of my podcast. You're, are you into double digits yet? Um, yes. Yeah. How are you finding it? It's it's a labor of love. Yeah, I love it. I love it, but I really, I love your podcast because there's a relaxedness about your podcast. You, you sort of go w with the guests in such a way mm -hmm. where I try, and I try and be super, super prepared. I obviously try and go with the flow, but I just, there are so many sort of like haphazard or strange moments that occur on your podcast. Yeah. Um, and also I just love the conceit. I mean, I think it's so interesting uh, that you learn about these people through the things that they eat or the things that they don't eat. I mean, I loved when you had Carly Rae Jepsen on, this was several years ago. Jesse. Yeah? Hey. Hey. I just met you. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and this is crazy. Here's my number. So call me maybe. <laughs> that interview with her and I, I follow her devoutly I've never heard an interview with really? Carly Rae that real let me think for dessert yeah I would have ice cream I was gonna say cheesecake cheesecake yeah I used to be a, a cheesecake pastry chef assistant back in the day <gasps> and Ooh, even though I had she was just so comfortable I think there's also a thing where they're not as guarded as when because I'm I'm not a journalist and it's not to say that all journalists are wolves but my father is a journalist and he always said to me darling beware of the wolves mm. 
journalists. And so I think people always have their guard up a certain way, but there's a protection. I think there's a disarming quality when you're giving somebody a piece of grub and your mother, your 70-year-old mother's there and you're fighting with her over the cutlery or the temperature of the food. It's very real. So I think people go, well, hold on, I'm in somebody's house. I'm having dinner. They've cooked for me. There's like an offering there. And there's a respect and um, there for an, and an acceptance that this isn't how it a usual interview it's not meant to be an interview to be honest right That's yeah the thing. it doesn't come off that way it comes off as yeah. conversation um you know you've done your prep today i don't do my prep but I don't think... They just I, do prep of dietary requirements. But I think that your podcast wouldn't benefit from prep. Well, that's it. And yeah. when I've done prep, I did it with Tracy Thorne from Everything But The Girl. I just, I kind of spewed like facts at her. Right. And my mum was bored shitless. She was like, oh, for God's sake, really? <laughs> but I think one of the things that you're pointing to, which I'm always so fascinated by, is this idea of certain journalists out there are sort of looking for those nuggets. And I think one thing that's been interesting throughout this journey of this podcast is... I've had several guests on that have said things that they recognized after the fact might, if taken out of context, mm. portray them in a negative light. Mm. And I had one happen recently on the podcast where someone said something and they just weren't sure how it was going to land. And I went back to them and, and we took it out in the end. And they were so grateful. And mm. I thought, you shouldn't, this is, this should be very normal. Same, yeah. You're not comfortable. I want to create a safe space. One, for whatever reason, we didn't have one in that moment, or maybe we had one and maybe later, whatever, that doesn't matter. But what was odd to me is how grateful they were acting like I'm some sort of mensch for taking it out, when in my mind, I felt like that was due diligence, because I always say to every guest or their people before this podcast, if you're not happy with the end product, I can't be happy. And I think there's a responsibility as somebody who is doing a podcast where you are being given more time than potentially other interviewers would get and you you have to respect that and I we do exactly the same like you know if people go we love the goss but we're like if you want to give us the goss off the mic that's exactly. fine give us the goss I want to hear it and I'm very interested yeah. in it but I also want them to feel like yeah. we can sideline this yeah. but like let's sideline yeah. it because often it's good yeah. <laughs> um, do you get annoyed when the guests don't eat your food I mean you had Ian Schrager on uh, and you prepared canapé for him Am I saying that right? Canapé. Yeah. yeah. Didn't eat them. Yeah. And I would feel some type of way about that. You know what? And this is, um, I don't know where your majority of your listeners are American, I presume. Uh, no, we have a big UK and yeah, Canada. because we love you. Right. Okay. So <laughs> it's usually the Americans. Don't eat. That have the fucking mm. annoying dietary requirements. And it's usually the assistant who gives you something like, as if you listen to the Diplo one, it was like this whole thing where we were told which Gouda, how old the Gouda had to be. And he was obviously doing that like caveman diet. What is it? Like the one where you like just, it's like keto. But oh, anyway, paleo. It was like keto, paleo, whatever, yeah. but like an extra version. So like, and it was my mum when she reads this shit, she's like, oh, fuck, why are we having him around? <laughs> and then we do this charcuterie board with the, the 48 year aged Gouda and the, the drunken truffle goat cheese. I don't know. And he's like, thanks. Um, and mum's like, you know, I know you're not supposed to eat at this time um, because it's not in your window of eating. He's like, I'll fucking eat anything. Like, yeah, I'll have that drink, yeah. And you're like, oh, for fuck's sake. Somebody could have just said, yeah, it's the Americans, no offense, or the people that work for the people. I think we take it with a pinch of salt. Mm -hmm. We roll our eyes, but actually it's 
kind of quite funny. Yeah. I mean, I'm fascinated by the art of handlers or managers mm. or what have you and how often there is a disconnect between them and the celebrity and yeah. how often I ask myself, is this is the celebrity the difficult one or is the people and have the people sort of placed this, um, this attitude about the person onto them yeah. or is it one that was actually projected to them? Exactly. That's the great joy I found with this podcast is most of the time I book the guests directly mm -hmm. and then we circle back to the people and then the people will be like, oh no, no, they're not available. I'll go back to the person and then somehow, some way we'll yeah. find a date. Yeah. I often wonder how much uh, buffering in this business is helping uh, artists in their careers and how often yeah. are they allowed to do the things that they want to do, talk about the things they want to talk about, et cetera. To your podcast's credit, I think it there's a freedom in coming into your podcast knowing I don't have to come in here and talk about myself yeah. if I don't want to. Yeah. I can talk about food yeah. and you'll hopefully learn about me through talking about exactly. food. Exactly, and that has been the beauty of it. And hopefully it means that we can carry on and on and on because the conversation will always be a bit different. Um, it gets harder to book the guests though. Like when you get even longer into your series, it's like, because you get amazing people. It's kind of getting harder because we've had such incredible people but equally and also like I think sometimes I want to you know we had Shania Twain and that was fantastic and we've got some really big names but I also want to have some really people that maybe aren't completely well known but are just going to have we'll have a giggle with too. No, but that's always the difficult balance to find, right? Yeah. Because oftentimes it's like, I want to be a cultural prognosticator, but oftentimes if- Prognosticator? It, yeah. That's a good word. <laughs> I've never, yeah. Sorry. But oftentimes it's like, you know that there are certain names that are going to compel yeah. people to come. I mean, you're in the situation right now where it's like Harry Styles, great example of like, being associated with Harry Styles mm -hmm. is going to generate interest in Jesse Ware. Yeah. It's a net positive, yes. right? Like one cannot deny. So you interview famous people, yeah. but uniquely you're friends with a lot of them. I mean, I think about your first episode with Sam Smith, for instance, mm. and part of that connection that's evident on the podcast is the fact that you both as human beings just mm. like one another, yeah. there's a history. How do you, from the perspective of a celebrity, contend with, I don't know, I don't necessarily know if you've had this experience, but a friend of yours getting publicly canceled or a friend of yours getting a public whipping, have you had instances where you've witnessed someone you know, whether it be close friend or just an industry acquaintance, going through that cycle? And, and, and how do you contend with watching it play out? I just recently um, called out Dolce & Gabbana on, on my Instagram, mm. right? And I have very good friends that are in very deep with Dolce & Gabbana, and I couldn't help but think, what is it like from their perspective to see someone, they know these people, clearly they like them, they're friends with them, mm. and I think they like me, we're friends, and it must be weird to sort of be that did, fulcrum. Did anyone get in touch with you? Uh, yes. And how was that conversation? Uh, it was interesting. It's still We're still sort of having it. Uh. I the the thing is I think social media is so dangerous because if you're posting or if you're not posting so many it, it says so much either way mm -hmm. sometimes I just kind of wish I wasn't on it but then I wouldn't have met you mm -hmm. um I mean the cancelling thing is terrifying it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because you don't know what to say because now I'm scared that I'm going to say something and then get... You know what I mean? It's like you you start like halting. At least I think the conversation in the context of a podcast is great because there's more space to have it. Yeah. Because imagine if this was like, you know, you were profiled in the New York Times in 2020, for instance, and imagine if like they devoted half the conversation in that piece to talking about the subject of cancellation, then suddenly you're the artist who yeah. that's your but thing. But I, I started finding that I was becoming the subject in that sense of like the subject I I felt like 
there was more too much attention to me either talking about and I'm very careful with it um, about anti-Semitism. Like that was a clickbait thing because I had to fire somebody because they were anti-Semitic when they were working with me. And I mentioned it on a podcast. And then it became like a Daily Mail clickbait. Yeah, probably nobody read it and that's fine. And then it goes away. But I don't, it's like you don't want to start getting these um, th- these kind of themes associated with you. Me being an older woman in music. Yeah, because I talk about it quite a lot. But also you don't want to have that kind of victim-like thing associated with you. Because everyone's like, bore off. Like, you, you fucking shut up. And it's true. Um, so it's you have to be really careful about what you choose to talk about. And that thing happens in the modern ecosystem of journalism where you'll mention one thing one mm. time, not you, Jesse, mm. you know, yeah. anyone in that yeah. position. And then there's another interview in which you're asked about the thing that you mentioned. So it creates a little bit of this like well, caterpillar. This, this happened with this fucking Coachella show. I did it. I said it in the Guardian interview, which probably was like the first interview piece that I did for the What's Your Pleasure run. And I said this thing quite throwaway where I was like, yeah, I think I was gonna quit music. And like, my mom told me to quit and Coachella. And then it became like the thing. And now it's become this thing. Like, you know, when Mark asks the question, he knows about that because I've talked about it. And because it gets it gets brought up so much, of course you, you can't go, oh, can we not talk about that? Right. Um, and it's become part of the story now, which I get. But I wonder whether if I hadn't have said that, whether, What's Your Pleasure would have had a different meaning for people. You know what I mean? Totally. It's, um, sometimes I wish I had more mystique if I kept my fucking mouth shut, but I'm on the bloody, in somebody's ear every week with the podcast. And actually that doesn't suit me. It doesn't. Do you know what I mean though? I mean, I look at some people you're like, oh my God, like you don't say anything and it's amazing. And I kind of want to know more about it. Yeah, but you have stuff to say. I do have stuff to say particularly about food. Well, do you ever feel like the Jesse Ware of the podcast and the Jesse Ware pop superstar are like incongruous forces or do you feel like they sort of feed one another? Oh, they fed each other. The, the podcast has helped me have more confidence on on stage and people have come to me as an artist that way and vice versa. So they work together and, and, I, and I like that marriage. It, mm. it, it's worked for me. Absolutely, I'm not complaining. Okay, last question. Yeah. Part of the many things that I love about you, and I've really come to know this side of you from the podcast, is this remarkable sense of humor that you have. You seem to possess this um, ability to not take things too seriously Mm. in a world that I feel increasingly presses people to take things seriously. Thanks. I consider the ability to not take life seriously a skill that one has to develop and hone. How have you... How have you learned to flex that muscle? How have you built it? Uh, maybe through my mum. I don't know, we used to laugh about when shit was really hitting the fan. It would always end in kind of mad laughter because you got to just laugh. I feel like, I feel like that's probably where I've learned from, like my family, my mum. Mm. I love in the, I think it's the first 45 seconds of episode one of Table Manners, mm you're setting up the podcast and you're trying to like, you know, get on the mic and like become the podcaster that you're willing yourself to be at that point. And you're explaining the podcast and your mom just comes in there and completely shits on it altogether. It's a podcast about food, family, and the art of a good old chit chat. I've decided to rope my mother into this because she's the best cook I know. And what we do every week is we invite a guest over to be cooked for by my mom. 
Oh, no, fuck. Because you don't know what... You, you, you need to think about what you're saying before you say it. Would you like to introduce it? <laughs> so, sorry. Well, I don't think you can call it the art of change. All right, fine, fuck off, right? <laughs> right, just go. You, you... It's about food family. That's great. I mean, yeah, and it's kind of carried on like that. Totally. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you. Anything you want to add before I let you go? No, I don't think so. Did you have fun? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you are so brilliant. Um, and I think you are an amazing interviewer. And I think that your content is excellent. Thank and you. And it's just really lovely to meet you in the flesh. It's lovely to meet you. And it's so cool that, like, again, you just came off this show last night. And I'm always just so curious, like, what does a pop star do the morning after a show? And like, here you are, and then you're going to go do it in again. New York City work. It's like, I don't know, because I don't come here that much. And this isn't work. This is a pleasure. But um, when I'm in New York, it's there's so many things I have to say no to now. And I've learned because it it's amazing because people want you and you're like, oh, my God, this was the last time. But now I've just learned no, I'm going to fucking do the nice. Like, I should probably go out for a nice lunch now, but I'm going to get in my pants and watch... Bad Sisters. Have you watched it? No. Oh my God. It's so good. Is this a TV show? Sharon Horgan, mm. who did Catastrophe. She did that um, Sarah Jessica Parker one that was all about the divorce. Uh, 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 not, uh. She's amazing. Um, oh my God. It's, gonna, it's with a really you long know, title. Was it a long Oh wait, Divorce on HBO. Sorry. Was it called Divorce? Yeah. All <laughs> oh, right. Okay, fine. Yes, yeah, fine. that one. Well, thank you. It's funny though because you say you've learned about saying no, but if people mention what's your pleasure... It becomes a yes. Yes. So I'm just saying, people. So shout out, Bevan listeners have this exclusive access to if you if you happen to run into Jesse. If you say, what about free yourself though? Listen. Also, if you say about the old cuts, that's when I I really respect you. Mm. (laughs) Champagne kisses. I mean, not the oldest cut, but look, it'll be in the set tonight, babes. Really? Yeah. Such a good one. Yeah, thanks. But I've really, I've really been deep diving Devotion, the full album ahead of today. Holds up so beautifully. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted it. To, I wanted it to be like a timeless. I, I want. I think devotion probably does hold up for that because that was the oh. real intention. It, it it needed to work beyond that moment in time, and and I'm really proud of it. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Okay, so I could pretend that this is a part of the regular interview, but I bet both Jesse and I sound a little bit different. And so the scenario is this: I reached out to a pie-in-the-sky person that you know that I do not in the hopes that they would be included in the episode and ask a question. I did not hear back from them in time, assuming I would never hear back from them. And then I got a text message about a week after you and I recorded uh, with a voice memo question from this artist. Uh, Jesse, you do not know who this is. I mean, you know who this is, but you do not know who I'm about to play. So this is a question from... uh, a friend of yours, no doubt a fan of yours. And I just have to say before I hit play, I cannot believe that this person responded, but it is solely a testament to you, Jesse, that this person who I don't think has a lot of time in their day to do stuff like this, uh, jumped at the opportunity to ask you a question. So let me ask before I hit play, do you have any guess as to who this is? Oh, God, I don't know. I kind of feel like you have access to everyone. So um, (laughs) I have no idea. Somebody that doesn't have that much time in their day that is friends with me that's going to text you. Like, I'm... I No clue. Come on, hit me. 
Hello, gorgeous. It's your fuck off. Little <laughs> Australian friend here, Kylie. Um, I have a question for you. A, a two two hand question. Um, our video "Kiss of Life," which I absolutely loved making, and I adore. I laugh every time I see it. Um, I wanted to ask you what was uh, your the most challenging part of that video and what was your most fun memory? Lots of love. <laughs> Bye. Um, <laughs> that's fucking Kylie Minogue. That little laugh. My little friend in Australia. Fuck. <laughs> mm-hmm. how, how good was that for you, Evan? So surreal. So you can imagine in that moment, I'm like, oh my God, we already recorded. It's a wrap. And a less gracious person than you could have been like, I'm sorry, I'm on tour right now with Harry Styles. Can't hop back on the mic to re-record, but here you are. So I... No, and also, no, I, can we talk about the fact that I'm here because I'm fucking uh, an egomaniac and I needed to know who this person was. <laughs> let's be honest. Come on, babes. Um, uh, no, that, oh, Kylie. She just, the gift that keeps on giving, isn't she? Um I love you, Kylie. Um, and um, I, okay, so the, to answer your question, so we did this video for Kiss of Life. So she'd done my podcast and she played me some of disco and she was really proud of it. And she, we were chatting and I was like, you know, we should do something. And she said, yeah, that'd be great. And um, followed up and wrote a song that I thought would sound really good and left it open for her to write on it it too, to collaborate. But it was like, this is the idea. I really want to hear you do like another disco on, I want to do this disco with you. We did it. She wrote back and wrote her own bits. um, And we had loads of fun. And then the music video, it's like, what kind of video do you do? Well, you get Sophie Muller involved, who is like the G of, directing she goes this is what it's going to be and we're going to do this and it's going to be an all-night um shoot now I had a nine-week-old baby at that point and I was like oh shit an all-night shoot and I'm breastfeeding um and I don't know how this is going to work but it's a Kylie Minogue video and it's Sophie Muller Anyway, I tried to make it not all night because, yeah, duh. And um, and I was getting, no, I, I was getting a, no, it has to be at this restaurant called Ave Mario, which is very fun, very Instagrammable. It's fab. And um, she was like, they, they serve, so we have to do it when they're closed. So I, I have to say that... Kylie did longer hours than me because that's what a workhorse she is. And obviously I'm a lazy cow. My excuse is that I did have a nine week old baby that I felt quite torn with um, leaving, but I would do that for Kylie Minogue. Um, So potentially that was the most challenging thing for me. Also, I loved that the fact that because Kylie had already been doing a couple of hours before I got on set and I walk in and Kylie just looks absolutely fantastic she's fully in character as this kind of like wicked food critic that's kind of undercover and I walk in and like there's characters left right center it's like I've just entered an all-nighter party and I haven't had my first drink yet and and then they go right Jesse go and do your solo and um 
and do your dancing and singing. And I was like, oh my God, okay. So <laughs> that first take of me like dancing um, on my own is like the first moment I walked into the room. But I did have Kylie and all the um, supporting actors um, cheering me on as I did it. It was completely surreal. I think pumping at six in the morning with a bowl of pasta um, was very surreal too. Um, uh, pumping breast milk. And to be fair, my pumping of breast milk was pretty uh, pathetic most of the time when I do it. But I do have a very fun picture of me with like my breast pump eating a bowl of pasta in full glam and I was just like life is bloody weird um my uh my favorite memory I think probably was sitting opposite Kylie and doing like the roulette rush the the, the hand thing that's my favorite part she knew that I was trying to enjoy this moment but also I was kind of a bit sleep deprived and a bit terrified and was not meant to be doing a music video with Kylie Minogue nine weeks after having a baby but it was kind of mad, raucous, and like the quickest video I've ever done in my life. And you did just have to trust Sophie Miller. So many moments in that in that video where you crave the two of you sort of like spinning this off into some sort of buddy cop comedy. I don't know. There's just, there's an energy there that you crave more and not just in the musical sense. I'm like, I just want to see the two of you, I don't know, sketch comedy. I don't know, something together. It was really, you know, it was very much inspired like by telenovela. Mm. Maybe it kind of worked better that it was the middle of the night and it was just like you couldn't really think about it too much. Um, But it definitely made me just have to go, you're going to look like a fucking prat if you don't bloody have a go. I'm not an actress. (laughs) Um, Kylie is a fantastic actress who we've seen growing up in Neighbours. Tank Girl, the Absinthe Fairy, you know, we've seen her do it. Um, she's great. Um, I've never done that. And then you're doing that opposite a great. And I think it just try it actually ups your game. But yeah, it was like an all-nighter with one of the biggest pop stars in the world. It was amazing. Mm. Well, thank you for taking the time. I have to say, you know, we spoke before about the possibility of you and Lily Allen linking up. And I'm just thinking with this menagerie here, we've got Jesse Ware, Mark Ronson, Lily Allen, Kylie Minogue. I don't know. I just see something. If I can manifest that, I'm just putting it out there. I honestly, I'm so thrilled um, that you are such a, a fixer. The fact that you've just got Lily Allen, Mark Ronson and Kylie Minogue on a podcast to ask me questions. I'm very, very touched. And so it's testament to your bloody podcast and how brilliant you are. So yeah, I believe you can probably manifest this shit and we'll be writing a musical together soon. I love that. Well, let me just hold a mirror up and say, it's also a testament to you that these people want to take the time to answer the question, but but I, I accept that very kind compliment as well. Well, Jesse, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for hopping on the mic so early. You literally did a show last night. I, You know the Sarah Jessica Parker movie, I don't know how she does it. I, I feel that way about you in this moment, and I absolutely appreciate it. Um, thanks, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. What it should really say is... Shut up, Evan. You're way too fucking demanding. Let's be honest. Shut Up, Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.